Hello all and welcome to episode 11 of the podcast. This is and indeed I am the Dream Filter. Today we will be discussing the military-industrial complex, a term that became well known when President Eisenhower made his farewell speech on January 17th, 1961, upon the end of his eight-year tenure. A military-industrial complex is not necessarily specific to one country, but can refer to any conversant association between foreign policy, vis-à-vis defense or military, and associated production of arms on an industrial scale. That aside, while the speech of Eisenhower was not the first instance in which the term was ever used, the outgoing leader did, in all likelihood, redefine it for the modern age. The manner in which Eisenhower spoke of the complex was with great alarm, referring to it as a direct, even sinister, threat to democratic government. The military-industrial complex of which he warned, already well entrenched when he made his speech, was a vast amalgam of arms manufacturers, defense contractors, and various elements of the armed services themselves. Eisenhower spoke of an immense military establishment, as he put it himself, and its union with a large arms industry, quote-unquote. In addition, in 1961, as he made his farewell speech, the incredible amount of money spent on the military was already at a level unheard of in a time of relative peace, and it was within this context that he spoke. While he did not rule out the need for a military-industrial complex in some form to counter Soviet expansion, his concern was focused on the war machine based in Washington which, to put it concisely, incorporated vast money and power. The undeniable, even unavoidable peril was that great influence, legal or otherwise, could be exerted on government policy to maintain and ultimately boost both profits and power through perpetual war. I'm not going to read you the speech in its entirety now. Look it up online. It's easy to find. I shall read you excerpts punctuated by an intermittent dot dot dot. If you fear that I might read out of context, check it for yourself. Here we go. My fellow Americans, three days from now, after half a century in the service of our country, I shall lay down the responsibilities of office as, in traditional and solemn ceremony, the authority of the presidency is vested in my successor. This evening I come to you with a message of leave-taking and farewell, and to share a few final thoughts with you, my countrymen. Like every other citizen, I wish the new president, and all who will labor with him, Godspeed. I pray that the coming years will be blessed with peace and prosperity for all. A vital element in keeping the peace is our military establishment. Our arms must be mighty, ready for instant action, so that no potential aggressor may be tempted to risk his own destruction. Our military organization today bears little relation to that known by any of my predecessors in peacetime, or indeed by the fighting men of World War II or Korea. Until the latest of our world conflicts, the United States had no armaments industry. American makers of plowshares could, with time and as required, make swords as well. But now we can no longer risk emergency improvisation of national defense. We have been compelled to create a permanent armaments industry of vast proportions. 
Added to this, three and a half million men and women are directly engaged in the defence establishment. We annually spend on military security more than the net income of all United States corporations. This conjunction of an immense military establishment and a large arms industry is new in the American experience. The total influence, economic, political, even spiritual, is felt in every city, every state house, every office of the federal government. We recognize the imperative need for this development, yet we must not fail to comprehend its grave implications. Our toil, resources, and livelihood are all involved. So is the very structure of our society. In the councils of government, we must guard against the acquisition of unwarranted influence, whether sought or unsought, by the military-industrial complex. The potential for the disastrous rise of misplaced power exists, and will persist. We must never let the weight of this combination endanger our liberties or democratic processes. We should take nothing for granted. Only an alert and knowledgeable citizenry can compel the proper meshing of the huge industrial and military machinery of defence with our peaceful methods and goals, so that security and liberty may prosper together. Dot dot dot. The missing interim sections, people. Represented by the initial and final dot dot dot, were not related to the topic, so you've just heard the most pertinent part of the speech in relation to our focus in this and the next podcast. Early in the speech, as you would have noticed, was more than one reference to the man who would succeed him as president, namely JFK. As you are no doubt aware, JFK was ultimately murdered by a. <coughs> Um, <coughs> killed by a <coughs> <coughs> lone gunman. <coughs> In a speech before the American Newspaper Publishers Association on April 27, 1961, JFK, only three months into his tenure, also warned of the military-industrial complex. Albeit more indirectly than his predecessor, and its role in the broader globalist agenda. Here it is in condensed form. Mr. Chairman, ladies and gentlemen, I appreciate very much your generous invitation to be here tonight. Dot dot dot. The very word secrecy is repugnant in a free and open society, and we are, as a people, inherently and historically opposed to secret societies, to secret oaths, and to secret proceedings. We decided long ago that the dangers of excessive and unwarranted concealment of pertinent facts far outweigh the dangers which are cited to justify it. Even today, there is little value in opposing the threat of a closed society by imitating its arbitrary restrictions. Even today, there is little value in ensuring the survival of our nation if our traditions do not survive with it. And there is very grave danger that an announced need for increased security will be seized upon by those anxious to expand its meaning to the very limits of official censorship and concealment. That I do not intend to permit to the extent that it is in my control, and no official of my administration, whether his rank is high or low, civilian or military, 
should interpret my words here tonight as an excuse to censor the news, to stifle dissent, to cover up our mistakes, or to withhold from the press and the public the facts they deserve to know. Dot, dot, dot. For we are opposed around the world by a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy that relies primarily on covert means for expanding its sphere of influence, on infiltration instead of invasion, on subversion instead of elections, on intimidation instead of free choice, on guerrillas by night instead of armies by day. It is a system which has conscripted vast human and material resources into the building of a tightly knit, highly efficient machine that combines military, diplomatic, intelligence, economic, scientific, and political operations. Its preparations are concealed, not published. Its mistakes are buried, not headlined. Its dissenters are silenced, not praised. No expenditure is questioned, no rumor is printed, no secret is revealed. It conducts the Cold War, in short, with a wartime discipline no democracy would ever hope or wish to match. Nevertheless, every democracy recognizes the necessary restraints of national security, and the question remains whether those restraints need to be more strictly observed if we are to oppose this kind of attack as well as outright invasion. Dot, dot, dot. For the sake of transparency, it must be pointed out that the final passage I just read for you, the one that kicked off with a reference to a monolithic and ruthless conspiracy, was apparently about communism. But for those of us who are wide awake to the globalist agenda, it could have just as easily been talking about Western civilization and its leading role in the New World Order, even back in the time of JFK. It's hard to name a date, even a year when the military-industrial complex officially burst onto the scene, but World War II, buttressed by the subsequent Korean War, was clearly the watershed event. For some hard visual data to confirm this, try the following website, www.johnstonarchive.net slash policy slash edgegraph.html. The data in graph and also table form was compiled by a William Robert Johnston, last updated May 5th, 2018, and is titled U.S. Expenditures for Defense and Education, 1940-2014. While it is not represented in the data, I provide you international context. From relative obscurity during the era between their involvement in the world wars, military expenditure of the USA rocketed well above the rest of the world after their entry into the latter conflict, almost doubling that of their nearest rival and wartime enemy, Germany. After the conquest of Nazi Germany and eventual end of the war, US military expenditure was rivaled only by the USSR. Upon the dissolution of the latter in the early 1990s, the USA has reigned supreme in the realm of military expenditure. In 2016, it spent about $611 billion on the military, 36% of all military expenditure across the globe. Next was China with $215 billion, 13%, and Russia with $69 billion, 4%. 
Initially, the rise of the military-industrial complex was generally justified as a necessary development in the fight against Nazi Germany and imperialist Japan. Then, after the defeat of these powers, as a counterweight to the power of the Soviet Union during the Cold War, followed ultimately by the spectra of Islamic fundamentalism, especially after the events of September 11th, 2001, not to mention a myriad of other boogeymen of one stripe or another, who have cropped up intermittently along the way. In addition to this, the US is also far and away the biggest arms supplier. In 2016, it exported roughly $10 billion in major weapons, separate from small arms weapons. Next on the list was Russia with about $6.5 billion worth of major arms exports, followed by Germany with less than $3 billion. Out of the approximate figure of $31 billion worth of global major weapons sales, the top 10 countries accounted for about $28 billion. These figures have remained rather constant for some time. Perpetual war has been the reality since the end of World War II. There have only been five years during this era in which the USA has not been heavily involved in major conflict, mainly wedged between the end of the Vietnam War and commencement of the broad, large-scale proxy war against the Soviet Union in Afghanistan. Its conflicts have encompassed virtually the entire gamut, from aerial, asymmetric and ground campaigns to more clandestine methods such as black or special operations, deployment of intelligence apparatus, subversive psychological warfare, unholy alliances and war by proxy, often by arming and supporting highly unsavory elements against a common enemy, with full cover from the compliant, mainstream media. The basic result has been the spread of death and misery in several dozen countries across the globe, and roughly 20 million associated deaths in those countries since World War II, although definitive figures are obviously impossible to come by. But alas, democracy and human rights, correct? That's what it's all about, hmm? The truly enlightened among us are aware that powerful elements from the corporate, military and political worlds have effectively coalesced into a common block. An unholy trinity, if I may use a throwaway phrase, that is currently as entrenched as it has ever been. The defense industry in the USA, which along with aerospace still has about 3.5 million people under its employment, is clearly much, much bigger than what is required for the legitimate security needs of the USA. One is all too aware of the common refrain, but the USA is needed as a force for peace across the world. That's why this is justified. Just how daft are you? How do some people come to think this way? Think is actually the wrong word in this context. Some people, like you and I, we think. They don't think. That's the whole problem. They only regurgitate. Put simply, it's a chicken and the egg type of situation. The powerful forces who wish to maintain or increase military expenditure and profit from conflict in general have to influence US foreign policy to increase their bottom line. Conversely, those who make the policy, people who generally wish to bring the entire world under singular control, 
See, that's their imperialist agenda, if framed in a right, pleasant-sounding manner, i.e. propaganda, can be used as a justification for increased expenditure. If you would like a broad outline of the military-industrial complex, there is a nice, rather long article to be found online. It is titled, The Military-Industrial Complex in the United States, Evolution and Expansion from World War II to the War on Terror. It can be found on www.inquiriesjournal.com, all one word, lowercase. It was written by Aminata M. Cohn and published in 2013. In the next episode of this podcast, we will continue and ultimately close our specific focus on the military-industrial complex which will include some facts, figures and raw data that clearly and indisputably show it to be the cold-blooded, money-hungry, power-hungry monster that it is. Boys and girls, that shall be all for today. Remember, question everything, do your own research, keep a healthy, open mind. And above all, never forget, you've been given an intellect, so use it. Goodbye.